0: Welcome to See, Here Speak podcast, episode 31. In this episode, I speak with Jenya Euseni-Siegel about childhood apraxia of speech, which is often referred to as CAS. If you haven't heard of CAS, you do not want to miss this one. And if you have heard of CAS, I am certain you'll learn something new. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out com. To sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See, Here Speak episode 31. Today, I have Jenya Yuzini siegel and she is here to talk about childhood apraxia of speech. I will start by having her introduce herself. Hi,
1: I'm so happy to be here with you. So I'm Jenya Euseni-Siegel, as you really nailed that pronunciation, by the way. Thank you. (laughs)
0: I've been practicing.
1: I feel like everyone's nervous to say it. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Marquette University, and I'm a speech pathologist. I study diagnosis and treatment of childhood apraxia of speech and other speech sound disorders. And I look for mechanisms that mediate um, symptom presentation and response to treatment in these Relations and comorbidity, and all different kinds of things like that.
0: That's fantastic. So let's also tell the listeners, in full disclosure, that yes. we are friends, yes. and we've known each other for quite some time. How did yes. we meet? Yes. Well, how did we, so, like, if you remind me, like, I know it was through Jordan Green.
1: So, yeah, through Jordan Green. So when I came to Nebraska to start my postdoc with him, um, then... You were there. You were working <laughs> with him. Um, I, so I, I went to, I studied um, for my master's and PhD at Indiana University. And then I went to do a postdoc in Nebraska. Um, and we were starting up a lab, I guess, that where you guys had started up a lab in Omaha already um, at the Monroe Meyer building there and um, with UNMC. And I went to go sort of be the CAS arm of your team, right? You guys were learning right. about the language and the motor, and I was gonna know about CAS. And uh, it was really exciting. And so then we got to working on some projects there. And then when we all relocated in our weird uh, reality show type, uh, let's move an entire lab to Massachusetts. Um, <laughs> I got to go with you both and then I got to study more with you as well. So then I kind of was doing a joint postdoc. Oh, that was
0: such a crazy time, right? Because we had, it was really two labs, right? So it was Jordan's lab and my lab and you were, you were working with both of us. Correct. And then there were 10 of us, I think that came. It was really
1: so, odd and we just moved to Boston
0: yeah, it was All like, these yeah people
1: we- started <laughs> it up I mean it was like I just remember seeing everybody in Boston for the first time and it was just so crazy but really fun and we learned a lot and you know I learned a lot it was great what a
0: bonding experience yes. <laughs> it was like learn yes. how like you were learning about CAS you already knew a lot but you're learning about yes. the motor aspects yes. and the language yes. and then you got to learn how to like Move with the whole lab and restart oh my a whole gosh, lab, I know, right? I know. From scratch. Yes. It was yes. really crazy, but what a yes. that was a really fun time. And you know, yes. no one now. I don't think anyone's left in. Boston, that was here in the original. We should call ourselves like the original ten or something. Mm. And I don't think anyone's left. Oh, well, Meg make Simeone, Yeah, she's still but there, but she's not yeah. here at
1: the lab. So no one's okay. left in the lab. Right, right. Just you and Jordan.
0: Yeah, just us. And so yeah, just, us. just the parents. <laughs> just the parents are left. The <laughs> children have left.
1: And but and you're then, hardly empty nesters because you've got oh, plenty okay. of more fresh, you know, smart people working with
0: you. Never. We just keep bringing them on. Exactly. Them on. It's great. So this in this podcast, it's uh, we I have a variety of listeners. I have a lot of educators and speech language pathologists and parents, but I want you to start by describing, you know, what is CAS and how is it typically diagnosed and what are some of the treatment approaches that are used for childhood apraxia of speech?
1: Yes, these are big questions, Tiffany, big questions. Yeah, so childhood apraxia of speech is a neurological speech sound disorder Um, It makes it difficult for children to learn how to speak. It affects the precision and the consistency of speech sound movements. And it's in the absence of neuromuscular deficits. So what this means is neuromuscular deficits could be like abnormal reflexes or tone. um, And those are associated with a different speech disorder called dysarthria um, that can oftentimes cause like weakness and things like that. So that is not the issue or the core deficit in children with childhood apraxia of speech. These kids know what they wanna say, but they have difficulty planning the complex sequences that are needed um, to produce speech. Um, so It's just really a challenging disorder and it results in speech sound errors and difficulty with co-articulation going from one sound to the next and one word to the next. Um, It can really disrupt prosody. So the rhythm of speech, the melody of speech, and it can be very difficult to treat as well. So unfortunately, these children tend to have a really poor response to treatments, even evidence-based treatments for kids with other types of disorders like phonological disorders. There's a huge number treatments that work and work fairly quickly for children in that population and unfortunately these things do not work for children with CAS. Um, We really need to do different kinds of treatments, kind of specific um, other types of treatments that I'll describe uh, to get remediation, but the treatment needs to be very intense, um, very frequent, so instead of a child coming to see their speech pathologist for like 30 minutes once a week or something like that. Kids with CAS tend to need treatment like three times a week or more even. um, And they just need so many productions. They, you know, we aim for like minimum of 100, 200 productions per treatment session with them. So that is a lot of practice that these kids really need um, to start to make progress.
0: Yeah. This disorder falls under an uh, umbrella of speech sound disorders, but how is it different? Mm-hmm. You mentioned the phonological disorder. So how yeah. is it different than a phonological disorder? So
1: we really see different symptoms. Very interesting. So children with phonological disorders have patterns that they typically would display. So maybe they show like these phonological processes, like fronting, where their velar sounds are produced as alveolar sounds. Um, a K would be produced as a T, something like that. And because of those patterns, children with phonological disorders tend to be, you know, decently easy to understand because you can cue into those patterns and get what the child is saying um, because our brains are really good at figuring out patterns. But children with CAS are really inconsistent in the productions that they make. So you might have a child say the word elephant three times, and it would come out differently each time. And it could be a little different each time, or it could be drastically different each time. Um, and it sort of just depends on the child and the severity and things like that. Um, they also sound different in terms of their prosody, like I said. So one of the typical things that um, is described is that they might sound a little robotic, a little staccato in the way that they Um, sound or their stress patterns may be different. They may neutralize stress. So if you're supposed to say, you know, a word like um, or even a name, um, anything where there's different stress weak, you know, strong, they might say both with equal stress, both Mm. um, syllables. So they also make vowel distortions, they make voicing distortions. And so all of these things together make them, you know, really unintelligible a lot of times. And again, it's a lot to treat and it's difficult to treat. And, um, you know, that sort of is, is the gist of what the speech, Piece of it is like, and then there's also these comorbidities. So, in addition to having speech deficits, unfortunately, these children also tend to have a lot of other things that come along with it. So, they might also have oral apraxia. They may also have language disorder, which we'll talk more about. Um, literacy disorders. They may also have fine and gross motor deficits. So, I just really, you know, this. Population just has my whole heart um, because I think that it is really challenging for children with CAS to work through this and and be able to overcome it. And it's challenging for parents too. That's a lot to work with um, for your child. It's a lot to grieve, I think, when parents have children with multiple deficits like that. Um, it's a lot for teachers to learn to navigate so that we can help children to be their best selves and really get what they need to progress in every way.
0: What's the prevalence of CAS? So
1: it is one to two children per thousand. Um, A recent study, they kind of redid um, a prevalence study and they found it was more like one child per thousand, but I'm going to say one to two children per thousand. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's rare, but it's not that rare because what that boils down to is about one child per elementary school. Mm-hmm. So, speech pathologists are seeing these children. Mm-hmm. It's not so uncommon that you would never see it, but it's uncommon enough that you might really not feel confident mm-hmm. in how to make that differential diagnosis and how to do that treatment. Mm-hmm. So, I think, you know, one of the things that I think is great is that there's really becoming so much more awareness about apraxia and in so many different ways. So, you know, of course, like you can go to ASHA and hear a presentation about it. Um, But now I just recently realized the world of Instagram exists and I'm seeing amazing people, clinicians, parents who, you know, People with CAS who have these Instagram followings and they are sharing just excellent information you know research-based information which of course is wonderful and exciting um, excellent clinical expertise so that information is becoming so available to help parents NSLPs, and researchers just feel more comfortable with what CAS is and
0: And and shout out because you have a new Instagram, newish Instagram page that you're sharing some amazing information. Thank you. Uh, So I want to turn the listeners on to that and I'll put that in the resource section. How did you get interested in CAS initially?
1: So when I was doing my doctoral work with Karen Forrest at Indiana, um, she was working with that population and I started working with her and it just seemed like, wow, this is really so interesting. And um, I started doing my dissertation work and we were looking at inconsistency, which is one of the core defining features of CAS. Um, We were looking at inconsistency and sort of what other kinds of symptoms went along with inconsistency. And so I was looking at vowels and doing some acoustic analysis to look at vowels and also at voicing errors so children with CAS a lot of times instead of saying um voiceless plosives they'll say voiced instead which is interesting if you think about like you have three kids. So when they were infants, um, you might have remembered like them saying a lot of Bs instead of Ps at the beginning and, you know, Ms and things like that. So they're doing a lot of voiced consonants in the beginning. That's just developmental. And then you start to differentiate and you are doing your Bs and also your Ps. Um, Sammy is still in the B stage. A lot of Bs, a lot Mm of all the B words. So it starts to differentiate. And what we were seeing is that kids with CAS just really um, are not great at doing that differentiation. They have a lot of overlap in their voiced and voiceless plosives, which was interesting. And you really hear that perceptually when you give um, children with CAS a speech test, you know, of any sort, any kind of assessment, you'll hear a lot of, oftentimes, a lot of those um, voiced consonants instead of voiceless. So anyway, so we started to look at that and I just thought it was so interesting. And I remember one of the things that I saw in my dissertation work was that I think we looked at like 20 children or something with CAS and they had, in addition to the voicing, the vowels, the majority of them really had a hard time on the word structure portion of the self. And I was like, well, it's not just a speech deficit. Like there's really language problems with this too. And I mean, the research has always reported, oh, yeah, there's this disconnect where they have good receptive language and poor expressive language. Um, And I think, you know, sometimes people have reported that that's due to the speech deficit, like they can't, you know, do S. And so they're not going to have possessive S or something or plurals. But it's much more than that. It was like really, you know, they had sort of like certain pronoun categories, but not others. Or, you know, it was just really interesting to see how that kind of manifested. And um, that was something that I was so excited when I started to work with you. I was like, let's dig into this a little bit more. It's certainly, you know, really interesting and something that I knew that you would be able to appreciate for sure. Yeah, it
0: is, it is kind of cool because, um, I think, you know, our connection has been so enriching that way, too, because I've always been interested in speech sound disorders and the connection with language and literacy, but hadn't, hadn't done as much with apraxia. So when you came in, it was really a nice addition to think about what apraxia is like. And then I, I definitely have been interested in the apraxia type errors because we actually see those similar errors in children with dyslexia yes but they don't so, okay. have the diagnosis yes. of apraxia and I right. know we, we right. looked at that a bit we had a small sample so I don't think yes. we ever quite got our yes. resolution but I know mm-hmm. that's something that you're interested in studying in the future yes, too is for sure. more because it's not that all children with apraxia necessarily go on to have dyslexia but they definitely tend to have literacy problems and you can yes. imagine why yeah and it's Also interesting because children with dyslexia don't always have a speech sound disorder, whether it is phonological or apraxia. Right. But it almost seems like they have similar overlap. And I remember when first started working with you and I had heard um, Lisa Goffman present, which I know you've worked with her too. Yeah. And she studies, you know, the intersect between speech and language. And I I I've had so many students ask me, you know, why isn't there more people studying the intersection? because yes. like you said most of these kids have these comorbidities yes. Yes. but lisa's presentation highlighted how it's really about people and how they they kind of approach their science so she mm-hmm. showed a model of speech sound you know, production and motor speech, right. It had like this all complicated model about all the speech aspect. It had a tiny box for language. Yeah. And then she showed a model of language. Yeah. All these complicated parts of language and a tiny model for a tiny box for speech. And and people that study both are pretty rare, but intersect. And it's more just because we kind of tend, as PhDs, we kind of dig into one area. So I think the work you're doing is just so needed to think about the child as a whole. Can you tell me more about how you have thought of the child as a whole and how that's driven your research? Yeah.
1: So one of the interesting things was I remember when I was collecting data in Nebraska, um, and I had this, like particularly rambunctious, you know, eight year old that we were evaluating and he was just getting really antsy. And so I said, you know what, let's stop for a minute. You know, why don't you do 10 jumping jacks for me? And his mom was sitting across the table and he started to do these jumping jacks and they were so discoordinated. And his mom looked at me like, can you believe this, you know? Um, and I thought, wow, this is like really interesting. And so I just started to be thinking like, you know, I wonder what the motor, fine and gross motor piece is that's affecting these children as well. And I think around that time I went to um, apraxia kids, it was called Kissana at that at that time and I went to a conference that they were hosting maybe or we did a symposium or something and Sharon Gratz who was the head of um Kasana at that time gave a talk and she said 50% of the um, kids with CAS that they were seeing and and learning about through their databases and things like that Um, that 50% of them were reported to have fine and gross motor impairments. So I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So I knew I wanted to dig into that more. And this past year, we put out a paper um, looking at motor performance in children with CAS, with language impairments, without language impairments, and kids with speech sound disorders, again, with and without language impairments, and typically developing children as well. And it was really, like, so interesting. Um, We ended up finding that the majority of children with CAS really had pretty significant motor impairments. But, so like, I mean, so significant that they were performing in this like red zone on the movement ABC test that we gave. Um, and this is a test that looks at balance and um, manual dexterity. So like threading a lace through um, through like a card, you know, with holes in it or um, putting beads on a lace, things like that. Um, aiming and catching where they're catching balls, throwing balls and beanbags and things like that, and then balance where they're doing different kinds of balance tasks. Anyway, what we found was that the majority of children with CAS scored in this like red zone of having major motor difficulty that would probably require treatment according to the manual. So we, you know, also do a case history whenever we bring kids into the lab, and the majority of parents in the CAS group, did say yes. You know, I, like th- they didn't even know what we were investigating, really, right? Mm-hmm. They know they're coming in to get an assessment, mm-hmm. but they did say yes. My child, you know, I believe does have motor deficits. No, my child has not had a PT or OTE eval or treatment. So I'm just like, why is there this disconnect? The parent is concerned. Mm-hmm. The child has significant motor deficits that they, you know, are really having difficulty with this, but yet they're not getting the appropriate um assessments like why are they not even getting screened for it or something Mm -hmm. and so that's something that i'm going to really be digging into in the future um but i think that it really has something to do with the fact that maybe they're meeting the milestones but the quality is really poor and i know even from my own son who was delayed um, that we went to the pediatrician for his 10 month appointment and he was still not rolling both ways. He could sit, but he wasn't rolling. And so I said to the pediatrician who I adore this pediatrician, I said, you know, what do you think? Should he have like a PTE eval? And our pediatrician said, well, you know, if you want one, yeah, you can have it, but I don't, he doesn't need it. He'll, he'll probably be fine. We can Mm -hmm. just wait and see. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to wait and see anymore. I've waited 10 months. Like he's supposed to be rolling at four months, apparently four to six months. And he's like, just laying there. And I know that, you know, they need to like be moving to explore their surroundings. So his surroundings were like whatever we brought to him, but he wasn't motivated or able physically to do these, you know, other things and, and roll and walk and, all these other things. So we did bring him for PT and the PT was like, Oh my gosh, like he's on a three month level on some things. Mm -hmm. So she was so happy we brought him in and, you know, pretty quickly we were able to get him to be rolling and then crawling and things like that. He's not quite walking yet, but he, he seems like he's getting ready to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I heard Carrie Ebert is, um, a clinical expert in apraxia and autism and she does a lot of presentations and I've been following her Instagram and she posted something that really resonated with me recently. She said, how about instead of let's wait and see, we just see. Yeah, exactly. And I thought, yes, like, yes, yes, absolutely. Like, let's just see what's it going to hurt, right? Absolutely. What happens if somebody says, no, they're fine. You don't need this, you know?
0: Right. No, I think that's a great example. And I like how your research, and I try to do this too. It's hard, but to think about the whole child, because as a clinician, what struck me is that you go through graduate school and you take a class in each disorder. Yeah. Right, so you take a speech sound disorder class, yes. a language disorder class. Maybe if you're lucky you have an interdisciplinary program and you learn about what an OT does and PT mm-hmm. and those things, but then when you you so you have these silos of learning.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they may mention, you know, oh there's some comorbidities or some comorbidities, but then as a clinician when I went out, I was hit right front and center with one child in front of me that had multiple deficits and I'm thinking to myself, how do I manage this because I was taught in a way that created like a silo. Here's the evidence yes. base for speech sound. Here's the evidence base for language. Mm-hmm. You know, and how do we know overall the whole child and what they're going to experience? So it seems to me your work has such practical implications because if you are a speech pathologist who has a child with apraxia, you should be thinking what about these yes. other problems yes. and how can we treat the whole child?
1: Yes. Because what I really think about with this population is we have a child who already is having so much difficulty communicating. That is difficult Mm -hmm. enough. That is alienating enough for them. Like they're trying to communicate with other children, with their teachers, with family, everyone. They're having trouble with that then they also have these motor deficits. What is their experience going to be like in the world? What is their experience going to be like at recess? Mm -hmm. Now they can't be like super athletic, you know, because Mm -hmm. of this, maybe they are having trouble even ambulating sometimes or, you know, playing ball, like, you know, how much can these poor kids take? It's really the social implications are really challenging. And, you know, it just really, like pulls my heartstrings Mm -hmm. so hard. I Mm -hmm. mean,
0: and there's so much parent stress, as you mentioned. Oh, yeah. You've done so much advocacy, and you mentioned Kasana. Can you tell about some of that advocacy? You've done that since I've known you. You've been so active in advocacy for these children. Oh.
1: Um, so right now I'm on the um, the PAC for, for Apraxia Kids, the uh, um, Professional Advisory Committee or Council. And we really, you know, look into a lot of things. So we're trying to keep the research on their website up to date. And, you know, they put out grants um, for to support research. They put out a lot of content for parents. They put out webinars. So it's really, you know, interesting to kind of be involved in um, all these different aspects. They have Facebook groups that are really um, a great support. And then they've got experts like... Um, Ruth, I'm going to say her last name wrong, Steckel, Mm, um, from Mayo Clinic. Um, She'll write in, you know, when parents write with questions, she'll often be one of the people to respond to them, which is so helpful to have, you know, just really educated people to be responding so that parents know they're getting appropriate and accurate content. I mean, they really do try and support families to find answers to things and feel supportive, but also they do a good job of really only allowing, like, evidence-based information up on their Facebook group. So if a parent asks questions about, like, oh, I want to give my child supplements that are going to make them not have, you know, difficulty speaking anymore, that you know, that conversation is steered towards like, there's really not evidence at this point to support the use of any of these things. And, you know, you can ask your doctor about it, but there is not evidence showing that this is going to actually improve your child's speech. Um, So I think that's really good. Cassanna does, or Apraxia Kids does these walks every year, and that supports um, their different programming and also the research grants that they do put out, and I've had research funded by them before, which is great. Um, So it's just excellent. It's just really excellent. Right now, they're actually doing a virtual conference. They were supposed to be having this amazing conference right now, and unfortunately it's, it's gone virtual, but that kind of makes it more accessible for everybody. I'm, I'm liking all the virtual stuff that's up as a result of this uh, COVID-19. I think it's, you know, obviously terrible in a million ways, but also there are some positives I think coming out of it and accessibility of information I think is one of them, right? It really
0: highlights how important it is with these parent groups, like all these things that are happening with this parent group, apraxia kids. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. But the first step is for SLPs to feel empowered enough to send a parent to this group. So the parents even heard of apraxia. Yeah. Because the parent has to find it somehow. Right. So yeah. it yeah. seems to me like it's so important for speech pathologists to have the knowledge around apraxia of speech, even if they aren't seeing as many kids on their caseload. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I'm curious, like, how parents even find this organization?
1: You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of times it's – this is unfortunate, but a lot of times because pediatricians do not necessarily make the referrals in a super timely fashion, there end up being, like, three-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds who are really not speaking, and the parents are Googling. And they, I see them write into the Facebook group saying, like, I don't know if my kid has this, but I kind of wonder about it, or maybe an SLP has like mentioned it in passing. And you know, there's really different ideas about when and how CAS should be diagnosed. Um, ASHA had had sort of recommended h three. And I know that there is some pushback on that saying like three is not a magic number and it's not a magic number. I would agree with that. I think the reason why we say age three is because that's when we would expect a typically developing child to have enough speech to do um, to do like a differential diagnosis, maybe not a typically developing child, even I mean a lot of them have it by age two, certainly, but we want to have a child to have enough speech that they can participate in a speech assessment um, and we wanna make sure that certain things like inconsistency you know, is expected in a typically developing child to really be minimal by the age of three when they're speaking at that point, simple words anyway. Um, whereas a child with um, apraxia really continues to have a really high level of inconsistency. So we need certain things that happen during typical development, we need them to sort of like stabilize so that we can differentiate normal variability that we see at younger ages from inconsistency that we see sort of persist in children with CAS at older ages.
0: remember as a clinician feeling quite nervous initially on any type of diagnosis like that and I noticed that the more education I got on a certain topic the more confident Mm -hmm. I would feel sure but I also think it's also it's tricky because especially with speech sound disorder I think there can be some morphing that occurs along the way like a Mm -hmm. child can have apraxia of speech and then it's not necessarily that they don't continue to have apraxia of speech but they could it could turn more into like an arctic problem. Like, you know, maybe they have... That it looks they, like it, yeah. Right, so yes. it's tricky, right? Because it morphs into...
1: That's, yeah, um, so the sort of like the appearance of it, yeah, right? Right. Um, and the other thing is, is that you can have... CAS with a phonological disorder. Yes, yes. It does not, certainly right. does not right. preclude, you know, these other mm-hmm. things. So a lot of times when you do treat a child with CAS, as they become more stable, more consistent, then you can start to see these patterns emerge mm-hmm. that are phonological. Um, and so it's sort of is like, it's not that the CAS has gone away and you kind of still need a lot of times to use um, the principles, the motor principles to guide your treatment you know, even if the child is looking more phonological, but you might be able to pick your targets differently or something like that. I like to sort of do a mixed approach anyway, just to sort of, um, you know, hit it off at the pass, right? Like I will, I'll pick phonological targets um, and treat them using a motor approach um, so that I can sort of have the best of both worlds. And I think you really can't, um, I think that's, you know, if you're not sure, then I think that's also a good way to go. Because if you are treating a kid with CAS and you don't use those principles of motor learning um, and you don't do a motor-based approach, you're likely to not see progress. But a child with phonological disorder, if you do this combined approach, I think you'll still oftentimes see good progress. That's what I would expect.
0: Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. I think that does. Yeah. It is kind of inter- interesting too to think about why there are parents support groups for some deficits, not others. So, you know, Praxia uh, Kids has been around and was in the form of casana before yeah. and has been really strong for quite some time. And, you know, International Dyslexia Association, yes, very strong. We didn't yes. have anything for DLD and now that's- Yes, emerging, I saw that right? recently, yeah. Yeah, so that's moving, that's but cool. we don't really have the speech sound disorder either. So if you have a broader umbrella, umbrella, umbrella term of speech sound disorder right yeah well you know what there
1: are like there are facebook groups that have um but it's interesting like a lot of the families writing in, I do wonder, like, oh, I wonder if this kid actually does have apraxia yeah, um, right. because of, of what they're sort of describing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they will say, like, my kid does have apraxia, and I think it's interesting that they're in that group versus mm-hmm. the apraxia group. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think you have to find where you're comfortable. Yes. One of the things that I feel is unfortunate is that um, because – you know, even though apraxia has been around for a long time, it's not been around for that long of a time in terms of like us really sort of knowing how to diagnose it well and knowing what kind of treatments might work for it and things like that. And um, when parents get this diagnosis, a lot of times I feel like they really feel that it is practically a death sentence for their child. And that is so crushing. Um, so, I, I wish that that wouldn't be the case. Like, I, as a researcher, I want to do the work and, and help these children because I don't want parents to feel that way about their child. I want them to have pride in their child and joy from their child. And I don't want them to feel this like weight um, when they get a diagnosis like this that this child's life is going to be terrible. There's this really inspirational um, young man. His name is Jordan Christian, and I found him through um, this woman, Laura Smith, who's an SLP. She goes by um, her handle that she uses on Facebook and Instagram and stuff is um, SLP Mommy of Apraxia. She has a child with apraxia. Anyway, this young man is 23 years old or so. He's in college. He's about to finish up, and he has apraxia. Um, He had a CAS diagnosis, um, and he continues to have residual speech effects, so when you hear him, you know that he has apraxia. It still sounds like that, but he's quite successful. And he's probably got, like, I don't know, ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 followers on these different forums, and he's, you know, constantly putting out content, and it's just really inspirational. So, like, that's who I want parents to hear about, because I think that then they'll know, you know what, it's very likely if your child has apraxia and um, it doesn't have like another major piece, like a, you know, pretty significant cognitive impairment or something like the speech piece and even the speech and language piece together, like your child could still be just fine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, and I want parents to feel that way because it's mm-hmm. an exciting feeling to have, right. That you have this faith in your child, that they're going to grow up and, mm-hmm. and really be okay.
0: Right, and it can—that means crushing. different things,
1: obviously. Right, it right, means different right. things, but yeah.
0: but it, I think also, yeah, I think you're highlighting one of the biggest uh, important aspects of these parent groups is that support to see these models, right? So they mm-hmm. can see this young man who shows success, and they can have yeah. some models. And the other thing I see a lot, and I saw this with speech sound disorder too, is just the feeling of guilt. That parents mm, have, like, what oh, caused this?
1: Yes. Whereas when
0: they get in, yes. the more they know about the evidence, the more they can realize, like, I didn't cause, you didn't cause this. You know, right. this is so- a neurobiological, and you said that right up front. So, yeah, I think that's also a really critical part. Yeah. Um. One thing, speaking of Instagram, I want to ask you to, to talk to the audience about this. buy Bobby, a puppy phenomenon. Oh my gosh, that's this is so <laughs> Tell me all about it, because I know all about Bobby. Oh. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we started using this sentence in the lab um, during my postdoc because it's a sentence that's really good if you're collecting kinematic data. So when you put sensors on the lips and chin and things like that, you can use a sentence like "Buy Bobby a puppy" and see the lips, you know, move apart for those nice, you know, move together for the bilabials and move apart for the vowels, and it's different kinds of vowels. So it's this great sentence to use for kinematics. But we have the child produce it a number of times when we're doing kinematic research, and um, as a result, we had this nice little extra speech sample that we were collecting. Um, and we started to analyze it in terms of inconsistency because I was just like, let's just analyze everything in terms of inconsistency. Um, and we ended up finding this like really cool finding that children with CAS really have a hard time with it, but children with speech sound disorders are really, or phonological disorders and or disorders are really decent at it. So they might not produce it correctly, but they will produce it consistently. Children with CAS, often have time, uh, oftentimes have difficulty producing it consistently. And really, like, if you have them say it five times, and they do it differently, even one time, that sort of is enough to say this is a major red flag for CAS. And if they have phonological disorder, again, it may be incorrect, but it will likely be consistent. Mm -hmm. So, I did a little, like, tutorial on Instagram, and I had all these, like, SLPs and parents writing into me and sending me videos even, some of kids and some even of adults with, like, residual CAS effects um, showing that it is difficult. And, like, I, I mean, even it's, like, so interesting. Even having adults do it who are, like, trying as hard as they can to say it consistently correctly and they just really had a hard time with it. So I think we're going to put up, like, um, the Buy Bobby a Puppy Challenge to kind of see more instances and just see, like, how robust is this? I mean, it was, like, quite robust in our study. And so far, everyone that's sent me um, a sample or SLPs have written in about it were like, wow. Like, I tried it in a childhood, super severe phonological disorder, and he did it fine. Um, and so wow, that's, that's like great. a big piece, right? When you're trying to do differential yeah. diagnostic assessments, mm-hmm. you want to find something that's going to be really difficult for one population and really, yeah, you know, easy enough for every other population so that it's going to be sensitive and specific in differentiating those different
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, disorders.
0: Well, it really so. does make sense when you take a look at the sounds in the word that, like you said. Even a child with severe phonological uh, delay, the yeah. bees, the, the, va- the, the bees and the bees and the vowels yeah. aren't yes. as problematic. Correct. So you right. would imagine yes. that would be why right. you, know, you would but see. it's
1: again, it's taxing that um, yes. voicing yes. Um, cognates, it's uh-huh. taxing those different vowels. And so that's exactly what children with CIS have difficulty with. And we see syllable segregation where it becomes mm. really choppy or they have difficulty maintaining the prosody. I mean, it is just like really eye opening really eye-opening.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So, yeah. That's very really cool. And that also shows kind of the power of social media now to get out the yes. evidence base, right? Because yes. this isn't something you made up. This is a study you did. It's yes. very clear evidence. Correct. So that's yeah. really, it's really interesting. That's very cool. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm thinking about our time and, okay. um, I would, I always ask every guest, uh, two questions at the end of the podcast. And okay. so, The first one I wanna ask you is what are you working on now that you're most excited about? So
1: I'm probably most excited about my procedural learning um, research that I'm doing now. So as we've been talking about, um, I'm interested in this comorbidity, um, looking at speech, looking at language, looking at fine and gross motor in children with CAS and other disorders. Well, what is tying all these things together? That is my question. So um, I think it's really intuitive to be like, oh yeah, a kid who has CAS would have difficulty with motor stuff because it's all motor. Or a kid with CAS would have difficulty with language because speech and language really intersect um, and interact but why do they have all of these things? And so one of the things that I've started looking at is procedural learning deficits. And procedural learning is the system by which we implicitly learn patterns. And these patterns could be in motor skills. These patterns can be in learning grammatical rules or in learning speech sounds. And so there are other models, um, like Nicholson and Fawcett had put together these models looking at other populations that have these like motor and cognitive linguistic deficits, children with dyslexia, children with SLI or specific language impairment, children even with ADHD. um, We see these kind of intersections. And so we started to think like, could this be sort of like a missing piece for kids with CAS? Could this be sort of something that can explain why they have difficulty in these different um, divergent seemingly divergent areas. And we are finding that yes, like kids with CAS and particularly kids with CAS and language impairments do have poor procedural learning. And so it's like this real interesting convergence So I'm excited to kind of continue to look at this and actually um, Maria Grigos who is uh, also researches CAS and kinematics and things like that. She is um, based out of NYU now and um, she and I are thinking of putting together an app that can actually measure procedural learning so that parents can be looking at this at home um awesome and and then we could just like take the data and say oh you know what like your child really kind of requires this number of exposures to a sequence to learn it or if your child has exposure to the sequence monday wednesday friday they are able to retain it but if it's like tuesday thursday by the following tuesday like they're not retaining it well anymore and that could really help us to learn about like Treatment scheduling. Wow. We're that's gonna, cool. You know, like you wouldn't that's want a amazing. kid to be in treatment twice a week if three right. times a week would make a huge difference. That's um,
0: great. Yeah. So, Oh, that is very exciting. I can't, I, I know you've talked about procedural learning for some yeah. time and I'm so excited to see that research. Yeah. Come so, I'm out. working on that paper
1: now. So, that'll
0: hopefully get submitted this summer. And, oh, that's yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to have lots of resources um, on the See Here Speak podcast page yes. that everyone can take a look at. Uh, and you're doing some uh, speaking engagements this week you said so you have what
1: do you have coming yeah up? so um so right now we have um, apraxia kids like i was saying is doing that virtual conference mm-hmm. and that's all free and that content is up now and it will be up through august 8th um okay. so log on there is so much content on there right now by slps by psychologists parents i mean everybody researchers so that's cool and then also um we have ASHA Connect um, has some presentations up now as well, tons of presentations. And so on Healthcare Connect, I'm giving some talks on assessment and treatment. So talking about like some dynamic assessment that's needed for kids with CAS and kind of that full breadth of assessment that we would want to do and then different kinds of treatments that are um, effective in this population as well. And that, that stuff is up until um, July 20th. So just oh, one more great. week for that and that is uh that conference does have a fee but it's tons of content you can get your ceus from the comfort of your own home
0: yes that's the best so, part isn't it I know, yes. I know. well I, i'm really hoping that talking to you uh will kind of whet the appetite of the listeners to look more mm. into CAS yeah. for those of you who've never heard of CAS. Yeah. It will you know, turn you on to that content um, and have that as another tool kind of in your yes. toolkit of what a child yes. could be struggling with and, and an SLP, you know, feeling <clears throat> maybe wanting to go get more research so they can feel more confident. Yes. But I don't want to forget to ask you the very last question. Yes. And that is what is your favorite book from childhood or
1: now? Yes. Okay. Well, I'll tell you one of each. So, my favorite one from childhood was um, Where the Sidewalk Ends.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Yes, by Shel Silverstein. So I fun. like the binding is falling mm-hmm. off of that book at my parents' house, you know, mm-hmm. from how many times I had read that. And then from now, my favorite children's book, I think, is The Earbook. Sammy really likes that. It's by Al Perkins. It's like a Dr. Susie kind huh? of. Um, oh, that's great. We love all that. But my favorite adult book is Option B by Cheryl Samber. Oh,
0: yes. Oh, yes.
1: And that really speaks to me. And I feel like at this time, people need to know about Option B because Option A is available to no one yes. right now in this yes. time of pandemic. Um, yes. And I think it just really helps you to get over Option A and embrace whatever Option B is going to be or C or D, you know, at this point. Right.
0: It's in that book. Uh, tell the listeners that might not know what that book is about. Yeah. So,
1: um, Sheryl Sandberg wrote that after her husband died very suddenly, like running on a treadmill while they were on vacation. And she, um, was, I just remember this like real vividly from reading the book, but she was talking with a friend. I think there was like a father daughter dance or something. And she was saying, I don't want my daughter to go with, you know, this other guy. I want him to, I want her to go with my husband, you know, and the friend said option A is not available. So, oh, it just like makes me emotional every I time. Know, me so too, yeah. about <laughs> so um, like really kick the shit out of option B. I love um, it. oh, yes. and it's really like, that's just how you have to approach it because, mm-hmm. you know, we've been through things in our lives and you mm-hmm. got to just figure out what that option B is and move forward and think about like post-traumatic growth. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think this is like the past several months with the pandemic, with, um, like the, you know, police killings mm-hmm. of uh, black individuals. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be very mindful of, um, really post-traumatic growth. There's a lot of trauma happening right now for people and mm-hmm. got to think about how we can do better and move forward.
0: I think that's yeah. so important. I think that's great. I'm glad you gave a shout out. It's so important right now, um, as you mentioned, for so many reasons. Yes. And uh, I think that people are looking for resources to help through these kinds of things and that is a great option. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Sure. So, so I just want to thank you for your time. I know this is, uh, as you mentioned, a really tricky time right now. So I oh, really appreciate great. you spending the time talking to the yes. listeners. And yes. uh, it's always a pleasure to yes. see what's going on with the original 10 and... Uh, <laughs> What everyone's up to, and I, I, love I just it. so appreciate it <laughs> That's what we need to call it the original 10. Exactly. Uh, but I appreciate your time so, so much, and thank you for all you're doing on social media, getting at the research out oh, there. Yeah. That's a whole other skill set. Sure. Oh uh, my gosh. And it's you've super always fun, though. been so good at that and inspired me oh, in thank that you. way, too. So thank oh, you so thank much. You.
1: Well, thanks for doing this. This is really fun. Yeah, anyone can hit me up if they have any questions about apraxia, please reach out. Um, it'd be great. <music>
0: Check out www.seahearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you. Making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.